Mark 4. Mark 14, verse number 22. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you now throwing ourselves upon your mercy at the foot of man's for righteousness continually. Lord, we know that it is only through you that we may approach the beauty of holiness that is the everlasting Father. And Lord, we are humbled by this opportunity. Oh Lord, it can stir within us a uneasiness knowing who you are, knowing what you're capable of. But Lord, we who know you as our Savior know that there's a sense of calm and peace because of the atoning blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, because you accepted that blood of the New Testament, that we may have peace with you, that you deal with us as sons, that you are our Father, and that you love us because you love the Son. So Lord, have this relationship with you, that Lord, through the words that are spoken in the Scripture that is read, Father, your spirit would use it to convict of sin and draw a soul unto you in salvation. Lord, this is our prayer. And Lord, as we examine this text, may we look to what you did for us when you sacrificed your son, Jesus Christ, and stand in awe and amazement of this glorious body and blood that was beaten and was bruised and was put to death. Father, in order for you to save sinners. And Lord, we worship you today. May we not take this time to think of other things. Lord, I pray for those who aren't here. I pray for those who are sick. I pray especially for those that just don't care to be here. Oh, Lord, may we not fool ourselves. May we realize there's a spiritual dearth even in your body of children professing children of God. Don't even care to take time to come and to be in your presence. And Lord, when I think of that, I think of myself. Lord, all of the days that I don't really care to. But Father, I thank you for your spirit that constrains us. Your spirit that keeps us, that prods us, that reminds us of your great love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Lord, I thank you for these things this morning. I pray that you would be with me as I speak. May nothing be said of the flesh and all things of the Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. And be seated. In Mark chapter 14, verse number 22, the scene opens and we find our Lord with the disciples under the glow of the soft candlelight in the quiet upper room on the day of preparation. It's the eve of the death of Christ and just hours away from his agonizing time in the Garden of Gethsemane and, of course, his subsequent arrest and betrayal by the kiss of Judas. Here, Jesus offers some of the most unforgettable words in the New Testament, words 
that He has in fact commanded us all to remember often. Now Jesus had already humbled himself Himself before the disciples when He washed their filthy feet, after which He issued a very startling and unnerving revelation concerning His betrayal. Now Jesus continues to administer the feast of the Passover, which is the reason for which He and the disciples were in that upper room that night. However, little did they know that this would be the very last legitimate Passover. But Jesus knew, of course. He also knew that this was His last time He would meet with the disciples before He would die. And in the midst of this feast, Jesus seemingly breaks with the tradition of the Old Covenant and explains that He would institute a new ordinance to reflect a new covenant. A, a covenant greater than the old. Now we can't understand the words and the actions of Christ and His disciples in the upper room without first having an understanding of the Passover feast. As well, the ancient Jewish traditions which were involved with its observation. Now the Passover was perhaps the most important of all of the feasts of Israel or the most famous, one that we are the most familiar with, of all of the feasts of Israel. We find that it was instituted in Exodus chapter 12. Most, if not all of us, know the backstory of the Passover and we know why it was instituted. 400 years prior to the great Exodus from Egypt, Israel had entered that land when Joseph brought his father and his brethren into the fertile portion of the country known as Goshen. However, over the course of years, after both Joseph and the benevolent Pharaoh passed on, the number of Israelites grew. Because of this, the next Pharaoh was not so friendly to the Israelites, and because of this, he thought it wise, because their numbers grew, he thought it wise to enslave the Israelites, so as to ensure that if they were ever inclined to lead a revolt and take over, that they would not be able to do so. And during these centuries in Egypt, the children of Israel began to struggle under the yoke of the oppression of the Egyptian Pharaoh. That is, until the time when God raised up a man by the name of Moses. He was a man who was both a Jew and a man who was also a prince of Egypt. And he raised him up for the sole purpose of liberating the people from bondage. And of course, we know well how the story goes. The Pharaoh, that austere, that stubborn man, refused to let the the people of God go. After nine devastating plagues, he still refused. There was the water to blood plague, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the disease upon the cattle, the boils, the hail mingled with fire, the locusts, the three days of darkness. These miraculous plagues sent forth by the hand of Jehovah didn't budge Pharaoh. But then God pronounced a final plague, a final judgment. And it was an unimaginable judgment. It was a judgment so severe that even the most faithful among us could be tempted to question if it indeed were too harsh of our Lord. Have you ever thought that before in the flesh? I mean, think about this. Because of the the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, God pronounced death upon the firstborn of all in the land of Egypt. God visited His wrath. He visited His condemnation upon the land. Furthermore, it needs to be clearly understood that all those who were in the land were under that curse, not just the Egyptians, as we're going to mention here in a moment. So God made a provision for His people. 
During the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, it wasn't just judgment upon the Egyptians that God handed down, but judgment came upon all. One preacher said this was a kind of mini-judgment day in Egypt. God's judgment and justice is visited upon the whole land. No one was safe. No one was excluded from this situation. There's no particular race or tribe or family of people that are going to be safe. So how would the Israelites survive? God therefore ordered that a spotless lamb be taken and killed. And he ordered that the blood of that spotless sacrifice was to be smeared upon the doorposts of all who would be saved. And that night, God passed over his people, while at the same time brought death to those who had no blood applied to their door. And remember this going forward. We're going to mention it later. God was teaching Israel that night the need of a substitute. The only thing that would satisfy the angel of death was death itself. It's the only thing that could satisfy the death angel. And at the end of the night, death had to occur. At the end of the night, it was either the lamb or the child. But something was going to die. This was how the Passover was to be remembered. But here in the upper room, Jesus is making a change. This very important feast, this holiday that had been observed for centuries was now at an end. We could say that it was fading out, but it may be more appropriate to say that it was fading in because it was culminating in something. It was being fulfilled at that very night. Now, there's one principal thing that I pray will be accomplished during this message, and that is that we, from this message, from this text, may have a deeper understanding of how All of redemptive history in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to understand. We're going over the covenants and the the overall law of Christ in Sunday school. Dealing with the covenant of redemption and these things. The Abrahamic covenant and of course the Mosaic covenant. All had their fulfillment in Jesus. All were converging upon one fulfillment. And why these are important, why the Old Testament is so important, why having an understanding of the Passover is so important is because it adds depth and understanding to what was going on this night in this upper room in Jerusalem. Sadly, when it comes to texts in our New Testament concerning the Lord's table, it seems sometimes, at least in our circles, I'm not going to paint with a broad brush, that more emphasis has been placed upon who may or may not observe. We debate, debate the nature of the elements, even the frequency of the, of the observation. Though some of those are important. They are. I'm not negating that. But more so than those things, we must deeply contemplate the meaning behind this supper. What this meant that night. Now also interestingly, before we get into our exposition, in this scene there is no lamb that is mentioned. In all four gospel, not one writer records anything about the roasted lamb, which was the central thing about this Passover feast. Why? Well, I believe to reveal to the reader that Christ was the lamb. The lamb was not being, we don't see, we don't see the lamb being served at the meal. The lamb of God was serving the meal. And he was the lamb of God who indeed came to take away the sin of the world, as John stated. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the body, we're going to look at the blood, and we're going to look at the blessing. First of all, the body. In verses 22 through 23 of chapter 14. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it 
and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it, or drank of it. Now, as was mentioned moments ago, for a more thorough understanding of the acts and words of Jesus in the upper room, I believe it's important, you know me, we like to incorporate history, geography, we like to incorporate manners and customs, because it enhances it. Um, We need to bring into the exposition the ancient customs of the Jews, whom we know were very traditional people, concerning this Passover. Now, the Passover supper would typically be administered by the father, the head of the home of the family. The father would be the one to make all of the preparation, and then he would systematically serve the dinner in a specific order. This is known as the Passover Seder, which means the order or arrangement. This wasn't like a family Thanksgiving meal where everybody fills their plates to the brim and then offer Thanksgiving, uh, offer the prayer while the kids are eagerly awaiting that prayer to end so that they can dig in to all of the wonderful food. And so this wasn't like that. There was order. There was an arrangement that they held to. Now, the feast of the Passover would include four important elements. It would include the roasted lamb, which, by the way, had to be roasted whole, head and feet intact. Even all of the inner organs were still intact. Uh, Its bones could not be broken, by the way, so it was very delicate. The unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and the Passover wine. And I say this because there is no reason to believe that anything was unusual in the upper room that night concerning the serving of the Passover meal. We would expect, in fact, everything to be as it traditionally was in order for Christ to reveal these things cohesively and thoroughly, what these things represented. Interestingly, throughout the Passover meal, there would actually be four cups of wine that would be consumed. There were actually four cups of wine that would be consumed. Each cup was to be imbibed at a specific point in the feast. These four cups represented the four expressions of deliverance found in Exodus 6, 6 6-7, promised by God. I will bring out, I will deliver, I will redeem, and I will take. And it's actually very important that this is to be brought to light because it really clarifies what Jesus says at the very end of the feast. So I want you to hang on to that. That's your little nugget to hang on to so you stay awake for the whole message, okay? Hang on to that. It's important to remember that there are several cups used and it brings to light what Jesus says in the final verses. Now there is debate, I will say this, amongst historians as to whether there were four cups or only three in that day. However, whether there were three cups or four, what's important to know going forward is that the final cup was known as the cup of blessing. It was known as the cup of blessing. Now the first cup, the first cup would be consumed before any food was served. Usually the youngest child of the home would be prompted to ask a series of questions, including the question, why do we eat this food on this night? In response, the head of the home would recite the Kiddush, which would explain the entire history of the Passover. After this explanation, the whole family would sing the Hillel Psalms, which are found in Psalm 113 through 115. After this would be the ceremonial washing of hands. Okay, so this is the order of the traditional Jewish Passover feast. After the Kedish, which would explain the history of the Passover, the, the family would sing the Hillel Psalms, 
and then there would be the ceremonial washing of hands. After the hand washing, the second cup would be passed around. Next, the head of the home would recite the matzi and the matzah, which were a twofold blessing over the first eating of the bread. And he would say words such as this to some effect. He would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat of the Passover meal. Now, let me pause right there. We can already note how Jesus often employed similar verbiage at various times in his ministry. He's pointing to something. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows what he's going to institute. And, and so when you understand this, when you see this, you can go back and say, oh, yeah. Didn't he once say, he who hungers after righteousness, let him come and eat. He who thirsts, let him come. Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's pointing to something. Because at the Passover, it would be proclaimed, let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat. Passover meal. After which the, pa- the father would then break the unleavened bread and he would pass it out to the participant- participants. He would bless the bread and give commandment to eat along with portions of the roasted lamb. They would not eat until the father had blessed it and given command to eat. The third cup would then be drunk after the blessing and the second eating of the bitter herbs with the bread and the lamb, which of course symbolized the bitter affliction of the Israelites in Egypt. Finally, after all was consumed, the family would finish the meal by drinking of the last cup. They would conclude the feast with the reciting of a prayer. And that prayer ended with these important words, until next year in Jerusalem. And all of that would be finished by the singing of joyful songs. And so after the final cup was consumed, they would say, until next year in Jerusalem. And they would depart singing hymns. Now why these details are important is because we need to note that our Lord would have been following the oral law in this Passover feast. And while he is doing so, at the same time, he's pointing his disciples away from the old covenant unto something new. But it also, why this is important is because it kind of gives us a timeline so that we can piece together all of the events by collecting them from all four Gospels. Because as I said last week, John, Luke, and Matthew give a little bit more clarity as to other things that were said. For instance, the washing of the feet. Mark doesn't record that. However, it was likely that the first cup had already been consumed when Jesus rose and the disciples followed. But instead of washing their hands, he knelt down to wash their feet. He was incorporating something here. He was changing the tradition. He was changing the Passover. They would consume the first cup, then they would go wash their hands. But instead of washing their hands, Jesus takes them and he kneels down before them and he washes their feet. Alfred Edersheim remarks, the washing of the disciples' feet is evidently connected with the ritual of hand washing. This symbolic act of our Lord must have followed close on the strife of the disciples. Remember they were arguing about who would be greatest. And on our Lord's teaching that in the church constituted rule and, uh, what in the church constituted rule and greatness. Hence, the act must have been connected with the first hand washing that by the head of the company immediately after the first cup and not with that at a later period when much else had intervened. And so, after the washing, the supper would continue with the second cup. A small piece of unleavened bread would then be consumed along with the herbs which were dipped in haroset. Now, haroset... Um, 
after which, lastly, two small pieces of unleavened cake would be consumed. The heroset is likely the sop of which Jesus shared with Judas, and it was likely after this portion of the supper when Judas fled into the night. So there were two eatings of the bread. The first, they would dip it in this sop, and it is likely at this point when Judas fled into the night. I say this because there's debate. Well, was Judas there or was Judas not there? Well, it was likely that it was underway, and it was at this point when Christ revealed who he was that Judas fled. And of course, after Judas had departed, the atmosphere was a bit clearer, and the Lord Jesus continued to administer this feast, which would precede the third cup of wine. That's when the head of the home would bless the next portion of bread, break it, and serve it to the family. And so it is here, (laughs) all that said, it is here where Mark begins to record these sacred words of our Lord. Concerning the bread, instead of reciting, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers did eat in Egypt, Jesus instead holds the bread and pronounces something quite different. He says there in verse number 22, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. This is my affliction. Paul adds in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, 24, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now remember, this is all about substitution. Passover is all about substitution, right? The substitutionary atonement of this Passover lamb. This Passover lamb died and was consumed in order to appease God, in order for God to have a basis by which to forgive sins. And so Paul adds, this is my body which is broken for you, showing substitution. Traditionally, this bread of affliction represented the affliction of the Israelites in Egypt. However, now Jesus associates it with his own affliction. Now consider how shocking this must have been to the disciples. Now listen, you and I, we have heard and we have read over these words many times, right? And we should. But this was the first time these disciples heard such a thing. Here they're going about their Passover feast. Now Jesus, instead of washing our hands, he's washing our feet. And now instead of saying, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Here they were together with their Lord. He'd oddly washed their feet. He'd exposed the treason of Judas. And now as they anticipate the familiar words of the Kadesh, Jesus drops another bombshell. They were directed away from associating this bread with their deliverance from Egypt and unto something deeper and something greater. Jesus is pointing ahead now. As Paul adds in his epistle, Jesus states that this affliction that he was to receive was for them. He's pointing to his own exodus, which would result not in physical deliverance of a people, but a greater spiritual deliverance from sin that they would have through him. And friends, this is what we must remember when we come to the Lord's table. This is what we are to contemplate and deeply meditate upon. The great affliction that was come upon our willing Savior. This bread is His body, not in a literal sense, but in a symbolic sense. His body, the bread was unleavened. His body was unleavened in that it was sinless, without spot, without blemish. The body indeed was, of Christ indeed was human, but utterly devoid of the sin nature. And it had to be in order to be the fit substitute for those for whom He died. 1 Corinthians 
For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was willing to give over this perfect, sinless body into the hands of wicked Gentiles to be scourged, tortured, ridiculed, and reviled, ultimately to be nailed naked to a cross in utter humility before all Jerusalem. He was willing to become sin in the place of the sinner, to bodily suffer and die. Let us never forget that. When we contemplate this suffering, when we contemplate the body, the bread that was broken in the place of sinful men, may we never tire of hearing these words. May the passion of Christ never be too familiar. And each time we hear of it, let it, let it shock us to the degree that it must have shocked those disciples in that upper room when Christ first said them. How often do we, we look at this table here down before us? And we're going to be observing this more often, by the way. It says, this do in remembrance of me. How many times do we look at the, that phrase and we just walk by it? We just walk on by How many times do we really think and do we really consider what that represents? As I said, these disciples were likely aghast in that upper room. How could this be? How could this master, this perfect, this pure, this sinless God-man, how could he be put to death in such a way? But yet we walk by that table all the time. And we never put a second thought to those words. May it shock us every time we hear it. May the words of Isaiah the prophet always stir up within us deep consternation at the thought of what our Lord endured as the ultimate Passover lamb, that he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we're healed. And so regard the pain and the agony, the suffering, the reason for the sacrifice that his body was given over as a substitute for us. And don't ever forget that suffering was necessary. Suffering was necessary bodily because suffering is a part of judgment. For those for whom Christ did not suffer, the suffering awaits them in eternity. But for those for whom Christ did suffer, no more does that judgment await us. And so this invokes within us not only a great disturbance, that ought to disturb you a bit, right? But great joy, love, and hope that this man would do what no one else would or could so that sinners could escape the affliction involved with judgment. That he gave over his body. This is my body, which is broken for you. But then there's the blood, verse number 23 and 24. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Now, as as was mentioned earlier, the teaching is that of substitution. This was his body given for you. This was his blood that was shed for many, as he says. Now, when God instructed the Israelites to smear the blood of the innocent lamb upon their doorposts, it was for a substitution. It was in order for the death angel to pass over them and spare the lives of their own firstborn sons. Again, judgment came not only upon Egypt, 
but upon all in the land. However, God had planned a special provision for His people to avoid that judgment. And by the way, notice that in all of this, Jesus never points to the central and most important element of that Passover supper. He never points to the lamb. He doesn't say this, this, this lamb was given. This lamb was given as a substitute. No, he only points to himself. His body, his blood for you. In fact, he states in verse number 24, this is my blood of the New Testament. Now, what does this mean? Well, another word for testament is the word covenant. Now, let me give you as much of this to whet your appetites, okay? A covenant is a pact made between two parties. Your Bible is broken down into two testaments, the old and the new. These testaments are a record of the unfolding of the revelation of God, and more specifically, His revelation in regards to redemptive history. The word testament, again, is synonymous with the word covenant. The Old Testament is largely a record of the people of God under the Old Covenant which included the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. After Adam broke the covenant of works in the garden, God established a covenant of grace. He slew an animal to make atonement for Adam, and He clothed Adam in the skin of that animal. What I mean by covenant of works? Well, God said that if you want to live and you want to have fellowship with me in this garden, you just obey me. And you eat of all of these trees. They're good for meat, but don't eat of the one tree. That is a covenant of works. That is a, you do this, you'll be fine. You don't do this, you'll bring judgment upon yourself. It was an agreement between God and between Adam. And Adam said, yes, Lord, I will obey. But Adam didn't obey. And so he broke that covenant. So now what, it, what, what needs to occur? Well, now grace enters. <laughs> grace enters. And so God made a covenant of grace. And, and we see this covenant first being initiated when God slew the animal in order to provide a sacrifice, in order to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He did that out of grace, right? They certainly didn't deserve it. But later on, God made a covenant with Abraham, which included a promise. I'm going to, make a, I'm going to, to, to give you a seed, and I'm going to make of that seed a great nation, and I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you blessing. Again, another covenant of grace. Abraham, did, he was a pagan in Ur of the Chaldees. But then later on, God instituted a covenant with Moses, with the children of Israel, known as the Mosaic Covenant. It was another covenant of grace because it involved God liberating the children of Israel from bondage. However, this covenant also included law. Law which was given to reveal sin. Law which is given to point people back to the need of grace. Right? Now, I got a reason I'm telling you all this, okay? The Mosaic covenant was given not in the place of grace. The law was not given in the place of grace. But to illuminate the need for it. it involved God issuing forth rituals, ceremonies, and feasts like the Passover feast for the purpose of progressively revealing the nature and the need of forgiveness. That's what all of these things meant in the Old Covenant. It's pointing to one thing. It's pointing to a need for this to be fulfilled. The blood of the bulls and the goats and the rams and the lambs were offered under the Old Covenant to demonstrate substitution. And we've gone through this when you go through your old covenant. Why all of the sacrifice? To demonstrate substitution. 
But the, the, the problem was is that they had to be offered year after year after year. And innocent life was given for the life of the sinner. Innocent blood was offered in the place of the blood of the sinner because God had righteous demands that needed to be met before He could forgive anything. But these were temporary satisfactions. They were offerings that had to continually be made every year because ultimately the blood of animals was just that, animal blood. And it could only symbolize something greater that was needed. And something greater than an animal sacrifice was needed. Something greater than an animal substitution was needed. A vicarious human substitute was needed. And that's what the Israelites looked for in the Old Covenant. A fulfillment and an end to all of the ceremonies and all of the riches. They, rituals, they looked to the promise. And the prophet Jeremiah prophesied long ago of a better covenant to come for which the Jews awaited. And of course, if you go through the book of Hebrews, you will find that the writer emphatically stresses the point that the old would vanish away and a better covenant would take its place. And so that gives clarity as to why Jesus says what he says. This is my blood of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. The old, the Passover feast, that's fading into this. No longer are we relying upon the blood of goats and lambs and rams and bullocks. But we've got a greater thing here. We've got my blood. He is pointing to this covenant. It was here in the quiet upper room when Christ states that this, His blood, is the blood of the new covenant. He is very boldly proclaiming that He is the long-awaited fulfillment of all of those things under the old covenant. And of necessity, will put an end to all of them. You see, He is the fulfillment of it all. And that's why it's important for us to understand a little bit of Hebrew history, to understand the Old Testament, this covenant, because we wouldn't understand this if we didn't know this. But all of this was being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He would be the ultimate satisfaction for God, and His blood was all that would be needed for any to have forgiveness. Friends, His blood would be poured out. It would be shed. Now, to say shed blood is, implies violence. Right? Bloodshed, that implies violence. And His blood would be shed in order to ratify this covenant. And this is what Christ had on His mind that night. And this is what must be on the minds of all His children as we ponder His words in the upper room. That He would pour out His blood for many. That He would be the substitute. His body for our body. His blood for our blood. No longer would the paschal lamb be needed. No longer would the rituals and the ceremonies be accepted. Now all that is required is this. Take, eat, drink it. You see, the Abrahamic covenant implied promise. A promise of something to come. The Mosaic covenant was all about law. You see, the new covenant is about faith. It's about faith. You don't have to do all of these things. You don't have to look anymore. Because here it is, right in front of you. All you have to do is eat and drink. All you have to do is believe. By stating what he states, eat of my body and drink of my blood, Jesus is expressing that the new covenant is about faith. Faith in his body and faith in his blood and faith in his rule. Faith in who he is and what he did in order to effectually and finally bring about spiritual deliverance and spiritual blessing to all who have this faith.
Now, while so much more could be said concerning this feast, much has been said. Let's just summarize by comparing the Passover with this new institution. And do so by acknowledging the powerful truth conveyed by the deliverance of God's people through this application of the blood of the new covenant. We all, all of us, listen, we all had the sentence of death pronounced upon us. Listen, just as the the children of Israel in Egypt, they had the sentence of death pronounced upon them as well. But let us see very clearly that this feast which commemorated the liberation of Israel from death and bondage, when God saw the blood on the door, He passed over His people and brought brought death to all those who were not His people. And it is fulfilled by the liberating power of the blood of Jesus Christ. How that when in bondage with death at hand, He unfettered His people from the bondage of sin by His own blood upon the cross, and He delivered us from it. Colossians 1, 13-14 Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. What we have here is a clear picture of the bitterness of Christ's death. The sinless and sanctified life of the August Son of God, who condescended to earth to become the ultimate Lamb without blemish, set apart to do the work of the Father, and with the power of His blood, to liberate man from sin. From death. And friends, we must see this glorious application of how the bodily death of Christ And the blood applied personally to our account is the only means for deliverance. And when we come as a new covenant people to the table of the Lord, we regard the truth that by partaking of the cup and unleavened bread, that Christ our Lord is our Passover. He is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 11, 33-36 For I have received of the Lord that which also I have delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take heed, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And I like that word till, until. We find that word in here also that we're going to look at. And so when Christ gathered the disciples in the upper room as they had been preparing the Passover meal, He explicitly confirmed that no longer was the commemoration to look to the deliverance of God's children from Egypt, Egypt, but was to be fulfilled by Him as He directed them to the cross. And friends, it is a blessed truth to consider that when Christ made the atoning work of shedding His blood to pay the ransom price for His children, that in order to make the transaction complete and acceptable to God, Jesus our Lord put away sin from the accounts of those for whom the blood was applied. And we know this because He was the spotless Lamb of God without any of His own blemish, that He was the fit substitute worthy to take the sin of others upon Himself. This is what we remember. And listen, remembering the bread and the wine as His body and blood does several things, but I believe we can summarize it by two things. What does this do? Well, first of us, it teaches us how we are to feel whenever we come to the Lord's table. To remember that Jesus poured out His body and blood for sinners like us produces a great sense of humility and gratitude in the believer. Again, Israel was not innocent. 
the Jews faced the same judgment the Egyptians faced. Why? Because they were part of Egypt. They were enslaved to Egypt. Just as you and I are not innocent. We are enslaved to sin and death. We are a part of it. So may we never take for granted what God Himself did for depraved, disobedient, and unworthy sinners. May it produce within us great humility and gratitude. Because we didn't deserve for death to pass over us. We didn't deserve for God to put to death His only Son. J.C. Ryle wrote, the, the bread and the wine will remind us, remind us how sinful sin must be when nothing but Christ's death could atone for it. Think about that statement. How sinful sin must be when nothing but Christ's death can atone for it. But second, it also produces great hope within us because it reminds us of the great price that has been paid for our redemption. God sent His only Son to give His life and blood. And if such a great price was paid, such a gift can never be rescinded. The Father accepted that offering, proving that the Son was a worthy substitute. And if, we were to be taken, if it were to be taken away, it would prove ineffective. But the Father accepted it. And the fact that He says this is the blood of the new covenant. You see, the covenant of redemption was made in eternity. You see, the covenant of redemption is a pact made between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the Father would redeem a people unto Himself, that the Son would atone for, and that the Holy Spirit would regenerate. You see, it is a promise made by God to God. And if that could ever be taken away, God broke His promise to Himself. I know that's hard to wrap our minds around. I don't, expect, I don't understand it, but that's what it was. And this is the new covenant. This is the promise that His blood would be shed to atone for all whom the Father would give Him. That gives me great hope and expectation. It cannot be taken away. That covenant can't be broken. This is not a you do this and live. This is a Christ did this so that you can live. So we see the body, the blood, and then we see the blessing. Notice... Verses 25 through 26. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now in verse number 25, Jesus makes a statement as he refuses to drink from the final cup. Now remember what we know of the Passover feast concerning the last cup. That was known as the praise cup, the cup of blessing. It was only drunk at the time when the head of the house would lead in a special prayer which concluded with the words, until next year in Jerusalem. Until next year in Jerusalem. Until next year in Jerusalem. They would drink this cup. It was a token. And then, of course, all of the, the house would conclude with a song just as we see the disciples doing. But that phrase, until next year in Jerusalem, was a token. It was as it was, They were literally saying, until we meet again next year for the Passover feast. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I'm not going to drink any more of this. I can't partake of this last cup. He says, I will in the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Instead of saying until next year in Jerusalem, he says, until that day I drink it in the kingdom of God. 
Now, why did he say this? Well, because he wasn't going to be with them next year in Jerusalem. He, to drink of this cup was a symbolic commitment that they would meet again next year, but he wasn't going to meet with them again next year. He was doing something greater. John Gill says it seems natural to conclude that Christ had drank of the cup and the supper as well as at the Passover. It is reasonable to believe that he also ate of the bread since it appears from what has been observed before. The design of this expression that he says here is to show that his stay would be very short. The cup he had drank of was the last that he should drink with them. He should drink no more wine at the Passover. He had kept the last and which now of right was to cease nor in the Lord's Supper, for though that was to continue to his second coming, he should be no more present at it corporally, only spiritually. But there's a little bit more than just abstinence due to the fact that he wouldn't be there next year. This was a promise that he was making. Because notice what he says here. It's not just, I can't drink of this because I'm not going to be here next year. No, he makes a promise. He says, I can't drink of it, but I will drink of it when it's all new. In the kingdom of God. He's making a promise. A greater commitment. You know, in those days, whether this is connected or not, I just thought, found it interesting. In those days, people would use such language as a token of their determination to perform a task. For instance, in Acts chapter 23, verse number 12, when the Jews sought to kill Paul, they made a similar commitment. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. It was a resolve that they had, that we're not going to eat or drink until we get Paul. But this, this shows the resolve of Jesus, does it not? He knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to do. And he wasn't going to stop until the work was accomplished. And this is a statement of blessed, blessed hope because we know that indeed Jesus did all that he set out to do. He performed the work he told the disciples he would perfectly. He obeyed the will of God perfectly. This man who knew no sin, whose body was both pure and perfect without blemish, who though being made under the law was not himself subject to the penalty of the law, willingly placed himself under its condemnation and was made a curse for us. And he gave his word that night that there would yet be another time when he would enjoy sweet fellowship with his disciples. Friends, Jesus made an oath. And we are assured that one day that oath will be realized. Listen, the next feast is not going to be in an upper room in Jerusalem. But it's going to be in the halls of glory in the new Jerusalem. When the marriage feast occurs and Christ the Lord, the Son of the Most High, will drink the eternal wine at the table and make good on His commitment that He made to the disciples and to all who believe on His name. We will sup together again, He says to His disciples. It will be in joy and peace. Listen, then there will be no Judas present. There will be no arresting officers waiting outside. There will be no dark night ahead of us. There will be no ominous and foreboding ambience. We will revel in the merriment of heaven and the light of the Lord and the eternal cheer and most importantly worship of he whose body and blood were once given so that we can enjoy his presence forevermore. The disciples anticipated that. Later on they would because the disciples left that place that evening singing as all Jews would in conclusion of the feast. 
Now, they still didn't understand the weight of what was to occur. They didn't understand the profound significance of it, but they would. We certainly know that in the chaos of the day to come, the disciples would be left disenchanted. Even Peter would become discouraged discouraged and defeated. He would attempt to go back to his old life as a fisherman. However, the discouragement didn't last long because Jesus would rise again from the grave in just a few short days. He would reinvigorate his disciples for 40 days until he ascended before their eyes in the clouds of heaven. And these disciples would go on as he said they would. They would endure hardship. They would endure pain. But they would preach the gospel of their Messiah under their own bitter deaths. And we cannot help but to think that one of the many things about what their Lord instructed them remained their focus. That they would drink again with their friend one day. This was the final cup. He wasn't going to drink of that because it wasn't over. This final cup would become the first cup at the marriage feast in heaven when they would meet again. And friends, as solemn a time as it is to remember the beating that Christ took at the hands of wicked men, as painful as it is for us to imagine our friend undergoing the most intense torture known to man, As humbling a thought it is to recall that he poured out his blood to pay your sin debt. To be the sin bearer of you and I so that we can have peace and acceptance with holy God. It is also a joyful time of anticipation. I think sometimes we miss this. At least I have. I think sometimes we forget. Even as we observe this institution that we will meet again with him and we will finish that cup. That cup will inaugurate eternity as his kingdom that is growing today will be consummated once and for all. And what a wonderful time that will be. And the songs that we will sing will not mark the conclusion of an earthen ordinance, but they will be the first of millions we will sing as we celebrate the Lamb of God before his throne. And as the disciples finish up here, he doesn't drink the cup. He says, not until Jerusalem, but until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And they depart singing. It had concluded. That portion was over. And listen, when we enter into the gates of heaven, we will be singing songs, but it won't be because everything is over, but because it has all just begun. As we enjoy the presence of our Savior and we sup with Him for eternity. Let this be our remembrance when we come to the Lord's table. May God be pleased with what has been spoken. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this imagery. But... but